you know, it's 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 been almost two decades since the human genome, uh, the first release of the human genome came out. And, and with that came this promise that, um, you know, in a few years, there'd be an answer for all, we'd have a treatment for every disease. And, and I think what we learned very quickly is this sort of book of life that has all this information, we don't understand the information in it. This is Of Note, a podcast on innovation. I'm Laura McIntosh. And I'm Joseph Nother. Of Note is powered by Scribble, South Carolina Department of Commerce's Office of Innovation. Join us as we talk with some of the most inspirational entrepreneurs, leaders, and scientists across the state as they share their experiences with invention, growth, funding, culture, and creativity. Between the time we spent interviewing Heather Flanagan-Steet and the time we recorded this podcast episode, a significant breakthrough happened in the world of genetics. Intelia Therapeutics, a biotech company developing biopharmaceuticals using a CRISPR gene editing system, released the first clinical data in history supporting the precision editing of a disease-causing gene within the body. The success of their medicine could potentially halt and even reverse the relentless progression of genetic disorders like amyloidosis with just one dose. There's a lot of science in that statement, and I won't attempt to understand the depths of it. But what I do know is that we are on the cusp of a new era of medicine, one that holds the potential of curing genetic disease. We didn't just get here overnight. It's taken decades of relentless work to lay the foundation for the opportunities being explored today. It started with the Human Genome Project, a 13-year-long, publicly-funded project initiated in the 1990s with the objective of determining the DNA sequence of the entire human genome within 15 years. Planning started after the idea was picked up in 1984 by the U.S. government. The project formally launched in 1990, and it was declared complete on April 14, 2003. But just because you have a map doesn't mean you understand what you can do with it or where you can go. It's taken the innovation of thousands of scientists, people like Heather, to understand what the 3.2 billion bases of DNA actually means to an organism and what happens when we make changes to those genetic instructions. You would have to search hard to find a better example of the fundamental definition of innovation by trial and error. To learn what I mean, listen on. So I'm Heather Flanagan-Steet. I'm the Director of Functional Studies here at the Greenwood Genetic Center. The Greenwood Genetic Center is first and foremost a pediatric clinic. Um, we're a not-for-profit and we see children with rare genetic diseases, primarily from the state of South Carolina, but we do offer our services to children from around the world. The Greenwood Genetic Center is really unlike any other institution, particularly any other medical institution, in that we're really comprised of four distinct divisions that work very closely together. So we have a clinical division where obviously geneticists and clinicians see patients. We have a diagnostic division where we have world-class laboratories that are able to perform genetic testing for our patients. And then what most institutions wouldn't have is we have a research division where we can take those analyses one step further and provide answers to our patients. Um, but we also have an education division and we're committed to 
educating other people in the state, future workforce, future scientists and clinicians at being able to provide genetic care. So by having all of the different divisions under one roof at this institution, we're really able to provide more holistic care to our patients. So we can not only see them and try to assess what we think might be causing their issues, but we can give them a definitive diagnosis. And in cases where we can't give them a definitive answer from the information we have, we can in-house perform research to, to try to take those steps to give them an answer. We can even take those steps in research to try to find solutions. So a lot of what we try to do beyond giving them an answer for what their genetic disorder might be, would be to try to find a therapy. Are there things we can do to make their lives better? It's already apparent how important innovation is to Greenwood Genetics Center, purely from how they've chosen to structure the organization as a whole. But diving deeper, what does that innovation look like from the research and clinical perspective? So we have a number of ongoing cases where we're trying to find answers for our patients, but one in particular, um, we have a child who has a progressive ataxia. So she's becoming less and less coordinated as she, as she gets older. And um, we were able to model or sort of introduce her genetic alteration into the fish we were able to identify that that was the problem causing her motility issues, and then now have been able to study those animals. We understand the path that's leading to her problems, and we found several drugs that we're working with to see if we can use them to normalize and intervene. And so in, in that kind of example, in a, in a kind of a normal um, hospital setting, they might they might not even know how to figure out that that was that the issue was genetic correct and then even then after that there would be no way for them to figure out exactly what was causing that from within the genetic sequence yeah absolutely in in sort of more of a traditional clinical setting um, where a physician would see see a child um, they really wouldn't necessarily have the tools and repertoire of things to be able to necessarily provide them even an answer and certainly not the ability to take that answer, the steps needed to find a therapy. We are able to connect all the dots. We're able to see the patient, try to evaluate what the problem is, investigate, use genetic testing to find the problem, and then take it all the way across the finish line um, to what's causing the clinical features, and then how might we intervene. And that certainly helps that patient, but just by helping that one patient, there may not be other children with that same disorder right now, but what we're learning can be applied often to many children, and, and that's really important. There's certainly other institutions that, that see patients and you know, large medical hospitals that have uh, research capabilities, but there's no other institution like the Greenwood Genetic Center where all under one roof, we can serve our patient from beginning to end. As the Director of Functional Studies, Heather is deeply embedded in the research side of all of this. And if you're unfamiliar with genetics work, there's one humble tool that's invaluable in expediting Heather's tests, findings, and potential solutions to support therapies or treatments. She referenced it just a moment ago as the fish. 
So we use zebrafish to model human disorders, and, and the zebrafish is an incredibly powerful system for this. And it's largely because unlike mammals or mouse, which is sort of the premier model system, zebrafish develop outside the body. And many of the children that we are serving and diseases we study actually happen uh, in utero. So they're developmental in nature. And so the ability to see all of those processes happening in real time is really how we make the advances we do. Often we find these genetic variants that may seem like they're what's causing a patient's problem, but we've never seen them before. We don't have another thing to compare them to. So that's where the research really has to kick in. And we have to set up ways to ask whether those variants are meaningful or they just represent natural differences between individuals. So zebrafish is really powerful for looking at those genetic variants because we can actually introduce those variants into the zebrafish's own genome. And I think what surprises people most often is that we are so genetically similar to the zebrafish. So we share at least 70% homology across our genes with the zebrafish. And the mechanisms they use for tissue development are, are very similar to the ones we do. So they really provide a great model for us to look at genetic variation and what do those variants do as a tissue is developing. So we can, in real time, um, truly model where the, the zebrafish provides an example of, or a proxy, um, of what would happen in the human being in real time. And while you try to mentally picture this fish, even though it shares a similar genetic sequence to humans? No, it doesn't have hands or feet or hair. I think it's surprising to most people that um, the zebrafish is such a good model for human disorders. And, and, and that stems from a couple of things. One, you know, they're, they're millimeters in size when they're first born. They, they grow to be a couple of inches, but they start out very, very small. Um, they don't have lungs, they have fins, they don't have legs, they swim, they don't walk. Um, you know, so physiologically, they just look so different than we do. But developmentally and genetically, they have cartilage, they have hearts, they have bones, they, um, they have spines and central nervous systems. And all of those mechanisms that humans utilize to develop are, are extraordinarily similar to, the, to the, what the zebrafish uses. Um, you know, we spend a lot of time just watching things happen. So the very first disease we modeled in the animal was mucolipidosis 2. And there was this long-standing thought that um, storage of materials in the cell was causing these problems. But when we started looking at these animals in a dish, we never found signs of storage. And in fact, we saw all these other things happening. And one of the first things we could see is these animals had this incredible accumulation of fluid around their hearts. And until you can kind of watch that happen, you can really get misguided as to what the problems are. Um, same way we were able to stain these animals and look very closely at their cartilage. And we can see, you don't have to be a cartilage expert, you can see that the size and the shape of those bones are different. And then you can start looking even closer and say, why is the size and shape different? Well, the cells are shaped different. They're organized differently. And then we go a layer deeper and say, what's changing their shape? 
and what controls cell shape. And so we can just keep pulling back the layers and peeling off the pieces of the onion until we really get to the core uh, of the truth of what's causing these problems. Again, as you begin to imagine Heather's lab, no, it doesn't look like an aquarium. Well, maybe a bit. So, so we have an automated zebrafish system. It has the ability to house up to 10,000 different animals. Um, the animals are housed in individual tanks that carry about 12 to 14 adults. All of the adults in that tank will have the same genetic background. So by having all of these different tanks, we can house animals with different genetic diseases, different um, genetic backgrounds. Um, there's a very large system that keeps the water clean. It's all recirculating. So the tanks, what water one tank is seeing, the next tank is seeing, maintains a steady pH and temperature, and really creates the conditions that those animals would have in the wild. So if we want to study adult uh, features, adult clinical defects, we would look at those adult animals in the tank. But primarily, we study um, embryonic development and what's happening to children. So those adults will actually mate and provide offspring and eggs for us. And we watch those eggs develop from the moment that they're born and fertilized. And we can watch through cells dividing, cells moving, tissues forming, all the stages of, of physiological development. So while Heather's lab is full wall-to-wall -wall of tanks of zebrafish, it's the eggs she's after. But how does she actually modify the genetic sequence of these eggs? So there are a number of methods that we can use to modify genetic sequences in the fish, but mostly we use the explosion of programmable nucleases like CRISPR. Um, and we engineer, we go in and actually uh, use the CRISPR system to target a particular region in the DNA. We're able to cut it, open it up, and then we can introduce changes into it that way. You know, until uh, the programmable nucleases, the CRISPR being the one that most people have heard of, the only organism that we could intentionally modify the genome, uh, knowing what we were going to go in, what change we were going to make, was the mouse. And so for for what I do in studying early development, the mouse isn't always the best system. The fish is actually a much better system. So the advent of CRISPR has really allowed us in the fish to do the same thing and much more easily than it was done prior to CRISPR. I've heard of the CRISPR craze, but I really only had one question. What does this process even look like? So um, you introduce the CRISPR elements into the developing animal. And, and we do that through what's called microinjection. So we have a, a very thin glass needle that will introduce the, the RNAs carrying um, the CRISPR tools. We inject those into the embryo at the one cell stage. So you're literally putting it into the embryo that's gonna travel to the nucleus and, and do its job. It's going to exert that effect of cutting the genome and then allowing you to change. Yeah, so we go through all of these spaces and, and, and they have um, this sort of quiet solitude to them. Uh, and then we're taken down finally into what it seems like is the basement. 
And they're in this lab, um, you know, walk down this hallway. It's very nondescript. And you get in this lab, you open the door and uh, lo and behold, what do you have in front of you? Floor to ceiling, row upon row of fish tanks. Um, and these fish tanks have zebra fish in them and they've got markers. Each one's sort of serialized, got individual markers in them. And you start to realize, okay, there's something profound happening here. And that while we went through this wonderful green space, parked, got in, and then we had this sort of calming library uh, of public spaces upstairs, you start to find, finally find where uh, in this narrative the profound science is taking place. And it's in this lab with this zebrafish that they're figuring out what is working and not working in the human genome. Well, and yeah, so the zebrafish are sort of basically the heart of Heather's everyday research and clinical work right. with patients. Right. And actually, I think for me, what was fascinating is that it actually got us to finally see what that op what the, the zebrafish sort of operation looks like. Because unfortunately, we didn't actually get to see it. it. It reminded me of season one. We had uh, right. Dr. Shereen Chan with Nareen Therapeutics, right. who yeah. also uses zebrafish in her work. And but we never saw it then. We didn't right? get to see that the actual zebrafish. Um, and so actually, they've been using uh, Shireen's business and research out of MUSC have been using the the fish, the zebrafish for some modeling with mitochondrial diseases, specifically related to epilepsy. And it looks like back in 2020, they saw some pretty exciting news um, with a compound that they've created around vitamin K that would actually help with medication resistant epilepsy, which about one third of the U.S. has that issue. And, and unfortunately, there's not a lot of great options for patients with this. It's kind of like keto or implant of some kind. That's it. And broad spectrum sort of medications and cross your fingers that it all works. Um, so anyways, with, with what they've been doing with both zebrafish modeling and, and mice modeling, uh, it looks like back in 2020 that they have found, you know, a, a potential option for these patients. Now they're, they're quick to say they're still a long way away from making this, you know, into actual human use, but they're actively seeking federal funding right now and hope to actually be in a clinical trial over the next two years. Right. Yeah, that definitely speaks volumes to the utility of zebrafish in advancing genetic research. If you're interested in the pursuit of innovation, visit us at scribblesc.com for exclusive video interviews, news from around the state, and a comprehensive list of resources to advance your ideas. That's scribblesc.com. Beyond her job, we wanted to dive into Heather's field and what it means to be a scientist and perhaps how the lessons she's learned can be leveraged by anyone in any field. Innovation is something we do every single day. So um, it, it's not about the sort of the, the big breakthrough, the big, oh, there's a new tool. Certainly new tools, new technologies, new instrumentation, they're essential to what we do. They transform the questions we can ask. But for me, innovation is those little steps we take every day. You know, a, a, a big breakthrough, a new insight, a solution for a patient, it doesn't come as one giant light bulb in one day. It's every day asking one little question and then using that answer, what's the next question? Answering the next question. And it's when you get all those very small answers and you draw the connections that the answer comes, the solution comes. And, and for me, that's really what I think about with innovation is just that daily small step till you have the story, the answer.
In any scientific pursuit, when you're trying to answer a question, it is very habitual. It is very sort of systematic. You have to be incredibly focused on details, keep everything the same each time. But I think within that, you have to be careful to not get bogged down by dogma. You can't be locked into what you think this should look like or the way you think this works. The bottom line is scientists are truth seekers, and your job is to find the truth, not the truth you want it to be or what you thought the model was, the truth that is. So, so the danger is getting too caught up in what you think that answer looks like. And so while we have to be very systematic, very detail-oriented, we have to be incredibly open-minded. So I have to come in every day being ready to be absolutely flabbergasted by the piece of data that gets put in front of me. I've said on many occasions, that is not at all what I thought you were gonna show me. Please go back and do it again and, and convince me that that's what it is. In that way, you have to stay very uh, loose-minded and able to receive something different and then spend a lot of time thinking about what does that mean and how to, what is that next question then? Do you feel like a scientist is predisposed to that or have you had to work at maintaining that open mind? I think human beings are predisposed to wanting the answer to be what we've decided it is. So I think one of the things when you are being trained as a scientist that you are continually reminded of is it's not up to you what the answer is. It is what it is. And your job is to truly find the truth. And, and there is some discipline to that, to reminding yourself that I have to be incredibly open-minded. What, what, what do successes and failures look like for you? In terms of failure, I really resist the concept that anything is a failure. I think, I think anytime you are brave enough to try something or brave enough to ask a, a question, you have to be ready for the answer that you thought it's something else. You're going to be wrong in science the vast majority of the time, but that's not really the point. The point isn't about whether you got it right or, or your answer was wrong. It's about what the answer is and then providing the next question. So I don't really see anything as a failure. Um, I just see it as a series of things that didn't work but without those, I don't know what the next right question to ask is. So it's all about finding the path. While I applaud Heather's mindset around success, failure, and the scientific pursuit, she mentioned being a good scientist is something that's learned. Being a good scientist is an, is an acquired skill, right? When you're young, you have the curiosity, you have the energy, you have the desire to answer the questions. You don't necessarily have the mental discipline nor the technical skills yet. So part of the process is not just acquiring the technical skills, that's actually the easy part. The more difficult part is the mental discipline and the acceptance that in your pursuit, many times you're gonna get it wrong. And sort of reevaluating that information and then going back after it. And so that takes mental discipline. And um, I had a fantastic postdoctoral mentor that would say, I don't care what the answer is, just find it, it's, it's okay. I, I'm okay being wrong, I'm very comfortable with that. 
Um, and that is something that um, also takes the time and the confidence in, it's not saying you're a bad scientist or you're not good at your job, you just haven't quite gotten there yet. You haven't pulled, peeled back enough of the layers. I think one thing um, that I do is I remember that I had a, a professor once in grad school you would put your data up and you'd start to make all of these, well, and I think it means this, and, and then that could mean that. And, and he said, no, every experiment only tells you one teeny little thing, and you can't say anything, but that was up, that was down. That's all you can say. And then you use that to design the next one. And, and so I think that's one of the lessons that I would impart is don't try to make more information out of that one experiment than it's really telling you. Um, the piece of advice that I would give people is make sure that you create the, the time and the mental space to do nothing but think. So we're, we're all creatures of we have so many things on our list and, and I have to accomplish this and I have a deadline for that and these forms have to get over here. And, but when you get caught up in that, it, it also clouds your ability to be creative and truly just think about the problem. So the advice I would give is make sure that you remember that you're not doing nothing when you sit there and think. Make sure that you find the space and actually carve out the, the ability to just free your mind to think. It, I would argue that the vast majority of sort of um, insights or, or interesting ideas, I, I hesitate to call them good, but interesting, um, come when I'm driving down a country road or I'm just sort of hanging out saying, I'm not working right now. When I let my mind just sort of relax and think, things just very naturally start coming to you. Now looking ahead a bit, what is the best way to stay current and up to date in a field that is ever changing? Yeah, I, I think staying relevant and current um, today with, with science and technology and medicine moving as quickly as it is, is definitely a challenge. Um, you have to stay incredibly engaged. You have to read a lot. Um, but you, it can also be that you attend meetings, you go to conferences, you talk to people. And I might have missed a critical paper, but my husband says, did you see this paper? Or my collaborators across the street say, I read this great paper, you need to read it. So, so we really have to function as a community and, and help each other stay at the, at the forefront and the cutting edge. What is exciting for you? To, what are you looking forward to? Yeah, it, this is such an exciting time in science and medicine. Um, our, our ability to sequence an entire genome and, and starting to weed through that. Um, certainly the advent of genome engineering tools and CRISPR has allowed me to, I can make an, what we call an avatar for our patients. Um, right now I'm most excited about our collaborations with the people across the street at the Clemson Center for Human Genetics because they bring to us an incredible knowledge of genomes and how to analyze genomic data and what they're imparting to my ability to study disease is, is truly tremendous. 
So I actually, when we were shooting that day, that was my second time. And I hate that I actually haven't had more opportunity to be there. You know, COVID, none of us went anywhere. But yeah. I went there a couple of years ago, really with no agenda other than, you know, I just knew through the grapevine that this was a phenomenal facility with different capabilities. And I just wanted to make myself known to them as some kind of resource from just a collaboration and, and research capability with relationship to the universities, blah, blah, blah. Anyways, and so, you know, they gave me this amazing tour. And got a full behind the scenes, which it kind of made me wish I had maybe a little more science education so I could even more appreciate what was happening around me. But in particular, you know, with the Clemson um, Center for Human Genetics, they have uh, equipped themselves with something called the NovaSeq 6000 system, which makes me wonder what the 5000 looks like or looks (laughs) like. But I don't know. Anyways, the point is, it's actually um, considered the most powerful DNA sequencing instrument available wow and it sits there in a facility right there in south carolina do you know what it looks like it just makes me want to know what this thing looks like it's gonna look like a microwave or something so like that. i can actually show you a picture of it it, it doesn't look that fascinating um it's kind of like a big square gray box so that's why like i wish i had more of appreciation <laughs> for a, it. it's a big square box with yeah. a screen the future of humanity but in a box but in this big square gray box with a screen uh it's actually really cool what it's able to do i mean i I guess it's you know it allows for high throughput and flexibility to run a variety of projects with much better speed and efficiency than anything else that's out there i mean currently the, the greenwood center utilizes it for next generation sequencing technology for the whole exome sequencing uh to guide clinical care um, you know, in addition with the capacity to manage even larger amounts of data, the DGC, which is the Greenwood Center, mm-hmm. uh, plans to expand to whole genome sequencing within the year. Yeah. I mean, it's just crazy because what you're basically saying is like, if you go there as a family and, and you're trying to investigate what you might be able to do, I mean, they're literally doing, they're, they're literally running experiments that are for the individual right on campus without having to go anywhere to do it. You know, a family with a child that's looking for answers, they can at least have some reassurance that they're coming to a place not only from a staffing perspective, do you have world-class researchers, but their facility itself is best equipped to try and find that answer regarding their child. Right. But I, what I found also interesting was that the, there was a lot of reference in the, in the building to uh, this self family, hmm. um, self foundation. And I'm like, what, what's this? So I started looking into it and, and I found that, well, that's, that's, uh, that's, that's a family that, that made their money back in the old, you know, cotton and textile days. And the the irony just struck me that it's okay. This is money that has gone into this community, into this facility um, that I think at one point was probably state of the art at the time, right? right? Economically, not anymore. Um, and and all of a sudden, that money's gone into reinvesting into what is now state of the art from the future of humanity standpoint with genetics. And so I thought that's just such a what an interesting narrative behind um, the Greenwood Center. Absolutely, this groundbreaking genetic center. Perhaps the only piece of Heather's story that we haven't touched on yet is that she works with her husband at the GGC, which, as you might imagine, demands strong collaboration, communication, and partnership, and patience. My husband and I are both scientists, and we, you know, we're trained in different disciplines. I'm a developmental biologist; he's a biochemist, and we were married when we were in grad school. But after a probably 
you know, six years or something of being married, we'd never actually spent time talking about what we do and what we're interested in. You're a biochemist, I'm a developmental biologist. We go to the lab, we do our thing. So as we were finishing our postdoctoral training in St. Louis, we took a vacation to the Northeast and we were on the drive um, and just started talking about what we thought our next steps were. Were we each gonna get our own lab? Were we gonna be teachers? What we were gonna do? And we started talking about what we do. And I realized, I knew he studied rare diseases and cell models, but we started talking about how there were no good animal models for these diseases. And I was like, I'm a developmental biologist that uses the zebrafish system. This is crazy. And we literally did have a light bulb moment that we were like, oh my gosh, we need to work together. We need to take those disorders, what you know about them, put them in the fish. And, and so it's a great example of take the time to talk to people. Take the time to share who you are and what you do. And um, it's remarkable how many times when you do that, some whole new avenue opens up for you just because you created the space to not be just doing the work, but sharing it, talking about it. So how long have you been working together now? Uh, so Rich and I have been working together for probably about 16 years. Um, so shortly after we had that conversation, we went back and we pitched our idea to his advisor and he said, all right, I'm gonna, I'm gonna give you guys a year to see if you can get this off the ground. And then it, it worked really well. And so we started our lab in Georgia uh, together, um, and so it's been about 16 years. And so, and so, with 16 years of success. What what's the advice that you would give to that if someone is looking to, you know, start a business, collaborate with their partner? Right. I I think working together with your spouse or another family member um, certainly it has complications, but no one else is more invested in the success of that business or that endeavor than the two of you are. And so it works really well. It works really well for us because we have slightly different expertise and we really respect the other's knowledge and, and let them bring that knowledge to the table. Um, we also try to do something, and, and I encourage this in the lab in general, we kind of check our feelings at the door and you know, of course you wanna be the one that's right and you wanna be the one that has the big idea, but it's about sharing and about um, just trying to get to that place. And so we're really good at, um, and also being honest with each other. Like, I, I think that's a terrible idea. That's never gonna work and I think this is why. So we're willing to sort of pull back and forth until we get to the right answer. What about work-life balance? Do you do you find you have to integrate what you do and you, because you're both so passionate about it or do you sort of leave work at work? I think um, when you're married to your business partner, work-life balance is, is a little bit difficult. The sort of lines between personal and professional are, are blurred, right? Um, I think when you're a scientist or anyone that's in sort of a technological field, work-life balance is definitely a challenge because when you're a scientist, it's really who you are. It's how you think, it's how you approach life. You're a thinker. So, um, so it is challenging because I think about science a lot. Um, but you do have to create protected time and say, there's, there's not gonna be any shop talk over the dinner table with the family or um, this is time that we're sharing with our community and our friends and our family. 
Um, but it, what's funny is it's often in those times that again, your mind is relaxed and free and, and that idea comes. My name is Heather Flanagan-Steet and those were my notes on innovation. Thanks for joining us today. If you enjoyed the episode, please rate and review. Join us on LinkedIn or Facebook at Scribble Innovation. And don't forget, sign up for our newsletters. Special thanks to my co-host, Laura McIntosh, the Managing Director of the South Carolina Department of Commerce's Office of Innovation. I'm Joseph Nuther, co-founder of Design Sensory and PopFizz. Additional thanks to our team, producer and editor, Hunter Foster, sound engineers, Mike Deering and Samuel Thomas, Original music by Matt Honkinen, with additional support from Tia Nelson, Sarah Plemons, Ronnie Wilson, Robin Hendricks, and Lexi Williams. Next time on Of Note. People oftentimes ask me, okay, I have a business and I wanna raise money, what should I do next? And what I always tell people is, you're already six months too late because you should already be asking venture capitalists those questions if you're starting to think about it. So my first suggestion, of course, is start right now. Make a list of 300 investors that you can reach out to within the next month and then call every single one of them.